Welcome to Hope Plus, the podcast for Hope Community Church. If you're a new listener, we encourage you to check us out at hopecommunity.ca or find us on social media. We hope you enjoy this podcast. We are starting a new sermon series today for the next four weeks, and this sermon series is called Your Story. And just a bit of backstory behind what this series is about. Um, it actually comes from some conversation with people who are new to our church, new to the Christian faith, and they said, hey, like, we didn't grow up in the church, we didn't grow up with Christianity, we'd love for you to do some teaching on some of the basics of what you believe about the Bible, about Christianity. And so the way we're going to do this series is we're going to start with the gospel, like what is the gospel? That's today's sermon. And next week, Jonathan's going to be preaching on the story of the Bible. Then we're going to look at the story of our culture. And then finally, on kickoff Sunday, September 13, we're going to look at what does it mean to be faithful as a church, living at the crossroads between our cultural story and living faithfully in the biblical story. So that's where we're going. And if you're new to the Christian faith, I'm just thankful you're here for the conversation. And I had people after the 9 a.m. service ask me a bunch of questions, Uh, so you're welcome to approach any of us as leaders and pastors. We'd love to be part of a conversation if these sermons stir up those questions. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to read verses 1 to 8, where Paul uh, literally says, this is what I believe is the good news. Now, brothers and sisters... I want you to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, And then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Well, the dad paced around the hall of the hospital anxiously. Just a few minutes prior to that, His wife was delivering what he was hoping to be their firstborn child. And then all of a sudden, a doctor came in the room, and he called in another doctor, and there's voices talking back and forth. And all of a sudden, they rushed his wife out of the delivery room into a surgery room far down the hall. And there he stood waiting, wondering, what's going on? Was his wife okay? Was the child okay? Were they going to make it? And then what felt like an eternity later, a nurse at the very end of the hall popped through the doors, and she was pushing this cart which had a little baby in it, and she said to the dad, good news, here is your baby daughter. She's healthy, and your wife is going to be just fine too. Well, you can imagine the wash of relief and joy fill that dad as he held his baby girl. Good news. Now, of the many things that can be said about Christianity, we really do believe that the center of what we believe is good news. Not good advice, not good ideas, good news. Something happened that has to be shared. Something has taken place that we need to receive and talk about. That's at the center of the Christian faith. And interestingly, when the gospel writers put their quill to scroll and they tell the story of Jesus and what he did, the word they use, the Greek word, is euangelion. You know what that means? 
gospel. You know what gospel means? Good news. They couldn't help but talk about Jesus without saying, the person that we're telling you about, the things that happened to him are good news. And that's why the first four books in the New Testament are the gospel of Luke, the gospel of John, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark. It's good news. And when Paul, talking to the church in Corinth, starts talking about the the deep center of what they believe, he says, let me read it for you. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news I preach to you, which you have received and on which you take your stand. By this gospel, the good news, you are saved. Now, I want to name a challenge that we live in or have now that we live in the 21st century. It's been 2,023 years since Jesus And as the the Christianity has spread in different places, there's different denominations, people answer differently the question, what is the gospel? In fact, in Surge, our discipleship group that we have every year at Hope, I often will get people when they start this group to say, hey, what do you say is the gospel? Let me ask you, you know, let's say you get into an elevator with someone, you're going up 10 floors, and they know you're a Christian, they just say, hey, like, what's your faith all about? What is the gospel that Christians talk about? What would you say? What's your one to two to three sentence summary of the Christian faith that you hold? What would you say? Are you thinking about it? Keep that in your mind because we're going to come back to that question. Now, if you're curious or you're confused even what you would say, Paul is here to help because in this passage... Paul's talking to a very broken church, you know. Um, This is a church that gets not one letter, but two letters. It's never a good sign when you get two letters from Paul. It's like, I've already written you, now I'm writing you again. And I read a meme just like two weeks ago where it said, you know, if Jesus, or sorry, if Paul visited our city and our churches, we'd be getting a letter too. But in this letter to a very broken church, Paul near the end says, all right, this is the center of what we believe. This is what makes us church. These are the convictions that change the world. And this is what he writes, starting at verse 3. For what I received, I pass on to you as a first importance. Number one, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Number two, that He was buried. And there's some debate about people thinking maybe He was resuscitated, He didn't actually die, so no, He was buried. Number three, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And number four, that He appeared to Peter, the twelve, more than five hundred, and then also to Paul himself. There is a lot packed in this passage. Let me say the first thing. Number one, Notice how important this is to Paul. He says, what I'm about to tell you is the most important thing you can know about and believe in. Nothing is more important than Jesus and what was accomplished in His life, death, and resurrection, and you must reckon with that. If you come to believe in Him, He is therefore the foundation of everything you live for, and nothing else can be more important. Not your money, not your time, not your relationships. Everything is built on Jesus. Nothing is more important. Secondly, I want to suggest that it's really important that we recognize that Christianity is not just ideas or morals or good teaching on how to live. A lot of people, when you ask them, like, what's Christianity? Oh, it's this guy who gave some good teachings on how we're supposed to live. That is true. Jesus did that. But at the center of Christianity is an event. Something happened. Interestingly, I just read a few weeks ago, there was a a fellow who tried to compile all the teachings of different religious literature. So he took the Quran, he took the Bible, he took the Grant Sahib, the Sikh literature, and he tried to distill everything down to like 400 specific teachings. And he said, there it is, 
all the religious teachings, buy my book, you've got everything, you don't need to go to all these different religious literatures, there it is, you can live by these 400 things. And when I heard about that, I thought he missed the whole point of Christianity. Because Christianity at the center is not just about ideas on how to live your life. It's about something that happened to a person in the first century. And there were well over 500 witnesses who said this Jesus, who lived in the first century, a Jewish man, lived, he was died, that was witnessed, and he rose, and that was witnessed. And we must then wrestle with what it means. Everyone has to make sense of that event. We have to take seriously the testimony of these people and say, okay, if it's true that Jesus rose from the dead, what does that mean? Now, here's the thing. We can't talk about Jesus without telling a story. You can't say anything really meaningful about Jesus without saying, okay, what's, what's he there for? Why did he come? What were his claims? What is the story that makes sense of his life? And that's actually true of all of us. Our lives only make sense within a story. The events of our lives only make sense within a story. A good example of this, not my favorite, but it works, is a murder mystery. Anyone here like good murder mysteries? The murder mystery, most anyway, they start with an event. How someone died, the event, you know, someone got hit with a candlestick in the library. And then the rest of the story, the movie, is giving you plausible narratives that make sense of why that event happened. And the same is true of Jesus. There's an event, his life, his death, his resurrection, his appearance to people. And now we have to say, what's the story that makes sense of what Jesus did? And there were stories then, you know, in the Roman world, they saw Jesus as some strange religious zealot who's sort of stirring people up, making pretty big claims about being a king, challenging the emperor. And so they said, that's enough of that. We're going to execute you and show you who's boss. You are not. Then there are the Jews who said, hey, this guy's a heretic. He's claiming to be God. He's just a human. And they think this guy got what he deserved. He was crucified. That's the end of that. And today, of course, there's lots of different narratives for Jesus. Most people say, Interesting religious rabbi, lots of teachings on how to live, definitely did not rise from the dead. Let's move on with our lives and enjoy the gifts of science and technology to lead us to a better world. But a story makes sense of Jesus, and Paul tells us the story we need to ground Jesus in. Did you notice what he repeats twice in our passage? What's the phrase he repeats twice in our passage? According to the Scriptures. Jesus died for our sins, according to our scriptures. He rose on the third day according to the scriptures. And when Paul says according to the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament story. He's saying that's the story that makes sense of why Jesus came. That's the story Jesus himself was living in and claiming to fulfill. You can't understand Jesus without the Old Testament story. You know who else, by the way, told us to make sense of Jesus' life in light of the Old Testament? Jesus did. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24. Jesus in his resurrected state. He's got his body. He's walking away from Jerusalem. He finds these two travelers who are distraught, discouraged. They thought Jesus was something, but he died. They're walking away in sadness. Jesus comes along, and he starts listening to them, talking to them. They invite Jesus in for, for a meal. Could you imagine this scene? And they're eating with him, and all of a sudden, their eyes are opened, and he says, I want to tell you from the beginning how I fulfill the law and the prophets, how the Old Testament is all fulfilled in what I have done on the cross. Jesus, the resurrected Savior, says, the story that makes sense of me is the Old Testament. Now, you should know, next Sunday, Pastor Jonathan is going to be preaching on the whole story of the Bible. No pressure. No pressure at all, Jonathan. And I'm going to do my best not to steal from Jonathan's sermon, 
But uh, I'm going to steal from Jonathan's sermon right now because you can't talk about the gospel without the story and you can't understand the story without the gospel. And so I'm shamelessly stealing from his sermon next week. That's okay. He's got to do the whole Bible in one sermon. He'll forgive me later, I think. We believe that the Bible is not just a random collection of stories. And when I was a youth pastor, that's how students saw it, a random collection of confusing stories. It is one unfolding narrative from beginning to end. It starts with a beautiful creation that God places humans in to enjoy, to cultivate, to develop, and it finishes with a perfected creation that humans get to enjoy in the presence of God again. It starts with a garden. It finishes with a city. It starts with God dwelling with us in this world, and it finishes with God dwelling with us in this world. In the middle, we get the plot, and near the beginning, we get the problem. We'll talk about this more next week, but the problem that comes into God's good creation is humans saying to God, we'll take it from here. We'll rule the show. We'll live by our own measure. We'll push you at a distance, and out of that comes this awful, parasitic reality of sin. And before I say any more about sin, if you're new to the faith or you're asking questions about the faith, I just want to say this. Every person has to make sense of the mess of this world. Every person needs to give some explanation, whether it's in the back of their head or it's spoken out loud. You need to make sense of the mess. And the Bible does a phenomenal job making sense of the mess. The Old Testament is brutally honest about injustice, violence, hatred, warfare. All of it is in the Bible because it's honest about the problem and they know where it came from. Human rebellion, which breaks relationship with God It ruptures relationships with each other, family, friends, all of it. It puts us at a difference and not in sync with our creation itself. And it even puts us at odds with ourselves. We are not integrated whole people anymore. We're broken. Our compromised desires mess with us. And we make a mess of our lives as we chase after idols, as we put our hopes in things that can't save us, as we try to find meaning outside of a relationship with the living God. The Old Testament tells story after story of humans chasing after destruction because of sin. But the plot moves forward because God who sees His world descend into pain, descend into corruption, says, I will not let humans wreck my good creation. I will not let humans have the last word over the creation that I say good. And so God builds relationship with Israel. He draws them to Himself. He reveals His intentions. And over and over and over, He shows them, I'm in control and I'm making all things new. At the end of the Old Testament, actually throughout it, you find the people of God and even other nations experiencing the brutality of a broken world, crying out for saving, crying out for justice, crying out for the poor to be rescued, crying out for God to give forgiveness over sin. And then in the middle of the story, we get this Jewish man who has the audacity to get out into the public and say these audacious words, good news. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. Now, if I had more time, I'd go into a lot of detail, but I'm just going to summarize Jesus' statement very briefly. When Jesus says good news, what he means to say is the power of God, the authority of God to deal with the problem of sin to stand against the oppressive deception of Satan and to overturn the finality of the grave, that has come through Jesus. And Jesus has the audacity to say, I know what you've been waiting for. I know what the world is groaning in, and I've come 
to do what only God can do. The kingdom of God is near. What a bold claim. Right off the bat, good news, world. I've come to do what only God can do. Now, when we asked earlier how you would answer the question, what is the gospel? I have a guess at what some of you said in your heads. And in the 9 a.m. service, I had only one person nod with honesty. I'm guessing that the first thing that came to your mind was, Jesus died for my sin. Is that true? Oh, only a couple more honest people. It's a good answer. Jesus did die for our sin. And he did release us from Satan so that we don't go to hell. Because that's often how it's framed. Jesus died for our sins. We're freed from it so that we don't go to hell and we live with him in heaven. But you know what people often do is we skip over his life. And I think that's too bad because Jesus' life often helps us understand what his death is all about. His life is a constant demonstration of the kingdom of God. It's a constant revealing of the way the world's supposed to be, the way the world relation, the way relationships are supposed to be, the way we're supposed to treat one another, the way we're supposed to live, the way our bodies are supposed to work, all of it. And if you've been at Hope before, you'll know that I talk about Jesus' miracles as a snapshot of the kingdom of God. When he heals bodies that are diseased, it's his way of saying, bodies in my good world are meant to be healthy. When he casts out demons, he's saying, demonic power should not have any authority over bodies and people. When he calms a storm, he's saying, it was not created for the world to be in disorder and forest fires and tsunamis. Jesus gives us a picture of how the world's supposed to be at the beginning and the way it will be at the end. And I want to read an extended quote. This comes from a fellow named Mark Sayers, Australian. If you ever hear a podcast of his, his it's so much better than a Canadian voice because of that Australian accent. So hear his Australian accent. But here's what he says about Jesus' life, and I just love this quote. He writes, Jesus' life on earth points us toward the future. His actions act as clues showing us how the story of creation will continue in the future. Jesus' healing of the disabled points to a time when humans will be healed physically and mentally. Jesus' deliverance of those possessed by evil demons point to a future when evil will be expelled from God's world. Jesus' feeding of those without food is a glimpse of a future where the world will there be no hunger, poverty, or starvation. By turning over the tables of the merchants selling religious products in the temple, Jesus shows that our future will be a time when our worship of God will not be compromised by corruption and greed. Jesus' honoring of women, Samaritans, and children speaks of a time when no humans will be marginalized. And above all, Jesus' resurrection speaks of a time when death and suffering will be defeated and the world will be resurrected. Then he ends on this light and fluffy note. Sadly, though, most Christians miss these illusions, living as we do under the shadow of the hyper-real world. And we'll come back to that in a few weeks' time as well. Do you hear what he's saying, though? When Jesus lives and he's demonstrating with power the kingdom, he's showing us this is where the future is going. Bodies will be healed. The creation will be restored. Lives will be forgiven. Demons will be cast out. And all will be made as it was created to be from the beginning when I return. When I first started learning this stuff, it blew my mind. When I was a young adult and I started reading about the unity of the story of the Bible, all of a sudden I realized the gospel is so much bigger than I often thought it was. And I can only speak personally, but let me just say how I've kind of come around on this. I realized quickly as I read the story of the Bible and God's concern for His world that the gospel is about more than just individual forgiveness. Beautiful, 
though that is. I never tire of coming to worship and receiving the grace of Christ through the preaching, through prayer, and through singing. I celebrate that we are forgiven as God's people. But the gospel is about more than that. It's about more than just God in Jesus defeating the tempting power of Satan. Amazing though that is. And the gospel is about more than just Him overpowering death. The gospel is about Jesus bringing resurrection to the world. It's about Jesus coming to His world that is marred by sin and saying, I have been sent by my Father to make all things new. And He says exactly that in Matthew 19. And the apostles in writing Acts say the exact same thing about Jesus' mission. He has come to make all things new. You know, two quotes that come to mind. One, uh, this is a very easy to remember one, but a teacher of mine back in the day said, you know, God don't make junk. He's talking about the creation. And God don't junk what He makes. And through Jesus, He restores His world. And we will see the renewal at the end when Jesus returns. The other person is Chris Wright. And I'm going to paraphrase here because I don't have an exact quote. He says, the goal of God in sending Jesus is not to clean us up and then bring us out of the world. The goal of God in Jesus is to clean up the whole creation, including us, so that He can come and dwell with us here forever. Good news. When I was a youth pastor, I spent a lot of time teaching the story of the Bible. In fact, some of you here were my youth, and I just feel sad that you had to listen to this Dave Groon droning on and on about this. But I remember just listening to you struggle with what the Bible's about, trying to make sense of this long story, and I remember those moments of just like, ah, you mean to say that my life in this world is what God wants me to live? You mean to say that my body matters and that my body matters enough to Jesus I'm going to rise to life again and enjoy the things I love in this world? You mean to say that the home I live in, the relationships I have, all the stuff that's actually good in this world we get to enjoy forever? And the answer is yes. God's ultimate plan is to bring resurrection to this world and resurrection to our physical bodies so that we can enjoy this beautiful creation as we are intended to from the beginning. That is good news. That story transforms the generations after generation of a God who has the power to make all things new. Now I'm going to finish with the danger. With this too, we will come back to in this series. The danger is that every generation of Christians faces a temptation to, number one, neglect and then forget this story to let dust cover their Bibles and not really know what it's about, get confused by it, and just leave it alone. You know, watch some more Netflix. It's not that important, blah, blah, blah. And then what happens is another story, and trust me, we all are shaped by some story, whether we know it or not. Another story comes in and shapes our lives or then co-ops the biblical story, and we get some weird, messed up fusing of the biblical story with our cultural story. That is what happens, by the way, in Corinthians. When Paul writes to this church, they are like full of the Spirit. They are loving this power they have. They're speaking in tongues. They're doing all sorts of prophecy. And Paul's saying to them, you've got division between the wealthy and the poor. You are obsessed with the elite, with the philosophers, all these big ideas. You are so shaped by the Corinth story, and you are not living according to the Scriptures. And he's saying to them, you need to learn, church, how to live according to the Scriptures. And the same is true today. I don't think I need to talk about the challenges we all face in neglecting the biblical story, reading it, saturating it, learning from it, rooting our lives in it. But we also need to take seriously how there's another story in our own culture 
that is shaping our hearts, our ambitions, our future plans, and shaping our minds in a way that is not in tune with the biblical story. Let me give you a very poignant example of that. There's a scholar by the name of Christian Smith. A number of years ago, he did a study with 3,000 American teenagers, most of whom were Christian. And what he wanted to know is, how do these teenagers articulate their faith? Like, what is it that they say when they have to summarize what they believe about the world, their deepest convictions about life? And he compiled all their answers into this document, which then got turned into a book. And what he concluded was this. These Christians, or sorry, these teenagers are saying things that are actually very much not in sync with Christianity. And he said, it's actually not Christianity. He said, what I'm hearing from them is he coined this category. It's moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And I'll summarize it to you as follows. Most of the teens expressed a sense of God exists. He created this world and he watches over it in some way. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and in other world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when we need Him, and then He comes in to resolve our problems. Good people go to heaven when they die. That's the summary of moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, there is insights in there. I don't want to be trashed in this. But Christian Smith goes on to say, is this what the Bible teaches? Is the goal of life to feel good about oneself? And then he goes on to ask, well, what's missing from moralistic, therapeutic deism? You know what's missing? Sin. Sin is missing. You know what else is missing? The gospel. (laughs) Jesus is missing from moralistic, therapeutic deism. And he says, what if we help people understand to move beyond this to say there actually is a God who's come in Christ and the deepest needs of our heart, the deepest distortions in our hearts, he's come to deal with. And not only that, He's come to heal the whole creation. And I think all of us in some way have been affected by that moralistic therapeutic deism where we think of Christianity as God sort of doing what we need Him to do so we can feel good about ourselves. And the story of the Bible is about much more than that. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says to a church that has got its own brokenness, he says, this is the gospel. And to the church today, he says, this is the gospel, that Christ died according to the Scriptures. He was buried, raised to life according to the Scriptures, and he appeared. And the only way we can understand what that means is the story. And in the middle of that story comes this Jewish man who says, the kingdom of God is near. I have come to overturn the power of death. I've come to stand against this tempting power of Satan, and I have come to forgive sin. And the invitation to every single person, then and now, is to repent and believe. To turn away from the false gospels, to turn away from the false stories and say, Jesus, I believe that you died and that you rose. That salvation, forgiveness, freedom, and the cosmic renewal of this world is real because of you. And we are invited to turn in our own lives to receive that good news, and to take our stand. I want to finish with the words that Jesus himself gives about his resurrection in John chapter 11. To people grieving their friend's death, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And he finishes with this question. I'll ask it to us as a church. Do you believe this? Good news. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. We ask that you would reveal to us the gospel, that you would strip out of our hearts and our lives all the false gods and the false stories that we live out of, and help us see that Jesus Christ is life. Would you fill us with hope that because the tomb is empty, the future is secure? Would you fill us with confidence that when we take our stand on the gospel, we have stood on something secure? We thank you for salvation. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you that Satan has been defeated. And we thank you that death is not the end. Praise you, Jesus, for what you have finished. Fill us with your spirit. Amen. 